So last week um, was kind of a standalone vision mission um, Sunday. We talked about how uh, if we often say our mission is to uh, enjoy and extend the grace of God together, we kind of looked at um, kind of a pathway for that. Um, They said that we put the spotlight on Jesus, we deny ourselves to display Jesus, and we focus on eternity. And so if we'll do those things, put the spotlight on Jesus, not uh, about us, but it's about Jesus, Um, we deny ourselves to display Jesus, this constant crucifying of our flesh so that Jesus might be uh, manifesting through us, uh, his character, his love on display, uh, and we focus on eternity, this idea that um, whatever we face in this world, good or bad, uh, it's temporary, and God has called us to focus on what is uh, eternal, not what is uh, transient or will fade away. Uh, We saw how we have this treasure in jars of clay, how this message of this gospel, this treasure of this, the the love of Jesus and the the hope that we found in him uh, is this beautiful, beautiful treasure. And yet we are kind of compared to these jars of clay, these uh, lowly, weak kind of earthen vessels. And yet we carry this beautiful um, measure, um, sorry, message uh, of treasure within ourselves to remind us of God's greatness, right? The power comes from him, not from ourselves, and yet we are called to bear it so, um, and deliver it. This amazing thing that we've called to, <clears throat> highlighting his greatness, right? And we focus on eternity so that we don't lose heart, so that we, we don't get too overconfident in the victories of this life or uh, too sad or discouraged by the losses in this life, but that we focus on eternity and not become distracted This morning, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series in the book of James called Check Yourself. Check Yourself. The series will look at uh, various calls from James to consider different areas of brokenness or sin uh, that we struggle with um, to say that James is calling us to walk by faith, that our faith should work, right? It should result in works, that it works itself out, out. It's putting our money where our mouths are, or our works where we say our faith is. Uh, So we'll look at several areas of sin, struggle, um, which all lead us back to this kind of lack of faith, some area where we're not trusting that God's way is better than ours, and so it results in these manifests in these different sin struggles. So we need to all look at the man or woman in the mirror and see where the gospel can be applied to our brokenness, this idea of check yourself. Um, to not say this is a book or a message for them, but where does this hit me? Uh, we're going to be tying some passages together thematically for this series, and so uh, today as we look at hypocrisy, uh, we'll be in the second half of chapter 1 and the second half of chapter 2. Before we go there, uh, just a quick background on the book of James um, and a little bit of um, kind of what he covers in chapter 1. Uh, James uh, is written by James. Uh, the half-brother of Jesus, and its book, this book of James, is most likely the oldest New Testament book that we have, written in the mid to late 40s A.D., so right after um, the life and ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, if he was 30, 33, right? Um, it's not that far removed <clears throat> from Jesus' time on earth. And it's potentially a really amazing testimony to the grace of God because there are many who believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah until after the resurrection. Uh, There's some disagreement there, and so I'm not here to try to settle that debate or argument. There's evidence kind of uh, in both camps. 
Either way, the book of James was written by James as a believer. Uh, by the time he writes the, the letter, um, that he is a believer in Jesus. He has recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And so uh, he's writing um, from a Jewish background. He's well-versed, as Paul was, right, in, uh, in the law and, and growing up uh, religious in that sense of uh, knowing the Old Testament, knowing the Scriptures in that sense, and now in light of Jesus as the Messiah, how those things go together. Uh, and so he's calling his audience um, the, the dis, dispersed, he says, the 12 tribes that are dispersed uh, about. And so it's kind of these Jewish Christians who have been scattered about through persecution. Um, and he's calling them back to just this integrity in their lives. Um, these several wake-up calls that says that your, uh, your lives do not match the faith that you say that you have in Jesus. And so he's challenging, he's exhorting, um, there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of reason for them to walk away from their faith or abandon their faith or not live out what they say they believe. And so he's challenging them um, and then vicariously challenging us as we are also Christians and believers uh, if we've trusted in Christ for salvation. And so it's a wake-up call for us as well. Um, do our works match our beliefs? And so uh, James will write that faith without works is dead. And then he's going to address these different areas that all amount to a lack of faith and manifest in different ways. Uh, today, as I mentioned, is a look at the, the general hypocrisy that this leads to. Saying we believe and trust in Jesus and have faith, but then not living lives that match up to our supposed faith. So uh, let's look first at James 1, verses 19 through 27. James 1, verses 19 through 27. <clears throat> Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror." For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we're going to look at three things that we need to do or three keys um, in the Christian life that are crucial to combating hypocrisy with the grace of God. And the first one is this, we must let go. We must let go. James writes that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And that we're to put away filth and wickedness from ourselves. James is establishing the fact that those who claim Christ and his righteousness should not be people who are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, right? He's saying you should be the opposite of those things. What he's seeing, though, are these marks of hypocrisy. They reveal a, a double-mindedness, as he, as he would mention in chapter 1 earlier. The idea that the people of God are not willing to hear people out, but rather are known for cutting people off and losing their temper is not the way of Jesus or his kingdom. 
Sadly, people who claim to be Christians are often some of the angriest, grumpiest, complainingest, gossipingest, most impatient, greediest people around. But it ought not be this way. So James is calling this out. This is a hypocrisy in us that James is confronting in light of the gospel and Jesus' work in our lives. This contradiction or hypocrisy it reminds me of a scene from the movie Office Space where the main characters all hate their office jobs. They're just monotonous and just kind of mind-numbing work. And so it's this um, kind of a darkish comedy about uh, how office work and cubicle farms can just kind of drain you. But there's a scene where the company has brought in these two, uh, I guess, efficiency kind of experts, right, to figure out if there's redundancies or people that they can let go and who's not bringing value to the company, et cetera. And so they're interviewing everybody about their jobs. And they're interviewing this guy who's in customer relations or customer service. And they're trying to figure out what is it that you actually do here. And so he tries to explain to them that he deals with the customers so that the software engineers don't have to. But he's getting really frustrated because he's having a hard time articulating that he actually has any value for the company. And so he loses his temper and he exclaims, I have people skills. I am good with dealing with people. Don't you understand that? What is wrong with you people? This is not a good look for someone who's in customer service or customer relations, right? To be someone who's so quick to anger. And likewise, in James, it's not a good look for Christians to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. There's a hypocrisy there. It doesn't make sense. Remember that as believers in Jesus, we are ambassadors for his kingdom. We represent his kingdom to the world to show off how his ways are better than the ways of the world. To experience and display the flourishing that God has for us by living for him. So in order to avoid this hypocrisy, we have to let go of our agendas, our pride, our egos. We talked about this recently, that Jesus calls us to die to ourselves to crucify our flesh daily, so to take up your cross daily to follow him, that he would be increasing in us as we decrease. Sadly, this is not what the world sees too often. The world sees people who claim to know Jesus and be born again in him, and yet are more concerned with being right than in bearing the fruit of God's character. We're often more concerned with our own comfort and security than with the eternal security of those around us. We get more offended at the disruption lostness brings into our lives than the fact that so many people in our world are separated from God by their sin and headed toward eternal punishment. And so we need to let go. We need to let go of defending ourselves in the name of defending Jesus, where we have been offended and we claim that it's offense to the cross, and yet really it's our pride, our flesh that rears up. Our defensiveness often reveals a lack of faith and confidence in Jesus, who is not threatened in the least. When we think our defensiveness reveals a zeal and a loyalty for him. And so we'll claim the banner of Jesus and the banner of Christianity and go out to fight these arguments and fight these battles that we say are on behalf of the Lord. And yet Jesus is seated at the right hand of God because the battle has been determined. And so we need to let go of our pride and in humility allow Christ to live through us. Paul compares this letting go to casting off or taking off the garments of the flesh and clothing ourselves in Christ. He writes in Romans 13 that we're to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
and that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This letting go of self, it's, it's this first step to combating hypocrisy because leaning on and catering to and living for ourselves while claiming Jesus exemplifies this two-facedness, this double-mindedness that James mentions. And so we have lives that often don't match up to what the Word of God says and what we claim to believe. The second key we see in this passage to combating hypocrisy is we must look into the law. We must look into the law. We need to get over ourselves because Christianity is about glorifying Jesus and not ourselves. Hypocrisy creeps in because we say it's all about Jesus, but we're usually only naming Jesus or using Jesus to culturally identify ourselves. Like this is my, my set of values are based around Christianity, but we're usually just kind of, again, doing that in name only. Our motivation, our devotion must be to Christ. So as we let go of ourselves, we need to turn to Jesus, right? We don't just let go of ourselves and find ourselves wondering what is the center, what is the, uh, the basis, what is the standard, what is the source of life here. We must look at him and his word. James says in verse 21, we're to receive the implanted word. This shows us two things. One, the word we're to receive and focus on is not native to ourselves. It's been brought from outside of us. This truth, this life-giving truth, is implanted in us from somewhere else. It's not innate. It's not from within. And two, it's a truth that we call back to as Christians. It's not some unknown truth that has yet to be revealed to us. He says the implanted word. So we've received this truth. We understand we've been, uh, uh, the eyes of our, of our heart have been opened to who Jesus is when we come to him by faith. And as we read elsewhere in scripture, it's not uh, a yet to be revealed mystery. It has been revealed in the person of Christ. And so the way, the truth, and the life are found in Jesus. And so we, again, turn to this implanted word. We call back to it. If we've surrendered to Jesus, then we have this truth in us. It's not from ourselves. It's from the Lord. James then goes on to say that this hypocrisy we often display as Christians is comparable to a man who studies his own face in a mirror and forgets what he looks like when he walks away. And he contrasts looking at ourselves and not remembering with looking into the perfect law. So this idea of you can look in a mirror and kind of see yourself but not really pay attention, not really study, not really remember, walk away and forget what did I actually see with looking into the law that it might change us, reveal things about us that maybe we don't really want to know or deal with and yet it's transforming. And I love that James emphasizes the law as the law of liberty here. The law of liberty the word of God, his statutes, his commands, his law, it's not something that sets out to restrict or limit us, but it's freeing and that it leads to blessing and flourishing. It leads to life as God has intended for us to live, the identity that he has really set for us to walk in. But if we only look at the law or simply pay lip service to the law and don't really dwell on it and abide in it and let it work in us to make us more like Jesus, then we simply amount to the hypocrites that James is addressing in his writing. Consider the mirrors in weight rooms. I've often thought that the mirrors were there to, 
just make the room look bigger because mirrors have that effect, right? Oh, this room is much bigger and endless. Or maybe you're just there because people who are into working out sometimes are focused too much on self and image and kind of narcissistic. But really, the mirrors are there in weight rooms so that people can look and see, am I doing the exercises correctly? Can I check my form and make sure that I'm really doing what's effective to affect change in my life? Am I on the right track? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? That's what the mirrors are really there for. So it is with the Word of God. We look intently into the mirror of Scripture to assess whether or not our lives are growing Christward. We have this devotion to Christ, this faith in Christ by name, but how do we know if we're growing in Christ and becoming more and more like Him? We have to look into the law. The Word of God shows us the person and character of Jesus. It tells us how to live and love like Him. It shows us what He's like so that we can evaluate whether or not we look like Him. Are we living kingdom lives? Well, what does the kingdom look like? It's in His Word. Are we responding to the world the way Jesus did? How do we know? It's in His Word. So instead of trying to wield the Word of God simply as a weapon, it is the sort of the Spirit after all, we need to remember that it can also serve as a mirror, revealing our struggles and brokenness, yes, but also our growth in Jesus. Too often we relegate the Word of God to just trying to winning arguments. Uh, this past week, Deacon was trying to convince me that uh, we needed to go once a week. I usually take uh, him and Dottie to get McDonald's after school. And he was trying to argue for today. He's always trying to argue for today, whatever it is. And I said, no, 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 we're going to do that tomorrow. And he said, doesn't the Bible say, why put off for tomorrow what you can do today? And I said, yes, but we're still not going to McDonald's today. Uh, don't use scripture as a weapon like that to win your arguments. But we have this mirror in the Word of God that shows us our struggles, our brokenness, yes, but again, our progress, our growth, the reality of who we are in this Christ-word life. And we need to be patient with this growth. Someone who looks at themselves in the mirror every day only notices drastic changes, right? If you look at yourself in the mirror today, shave your head that night and look at yourself tomorrow, you're going to say, whoa, I look totally different. But if you don't make any drastic changes, but you're making little changes, you won't notice the change visibly day to day. And yet, if we take snapshots, weeks apart, months apart, years apart, you'll say, whoa, look how I've changed, right? Naturally through life, it's, oh, you know, my, my hair's a little thinner, or there's wrinkles or whatever. But with Christ, it's, oh, do I look more like Jesus? From day to day, I may not notice, but can I look at my patience today compared to my patience two years ago? Can I look at my kindness, my self-control now, as opposed to when I first became a Christian however many years ago? You may not notice every day the change, but if you can look back, you can see the growth. You can see the transformation. We need to be patient with ourselves. And yet, we still need to look in the mirror every day, right? We still need to look at the Word of God and measure ourselves against it every day, just so that nothing creeps in. If you wake up with bedhead and you don't look in the mirror, you don't know. That's a drastic change from the night before to the morning after. 
Miles woke up with this awesome faux hawk the other day. It looked really intentional, but he had just slept on kind of both sides of his head, hard, I guess, with wet hair. But if he hadn't looked in the mirror, he wouldn't have seen that drastic change. And so we look into the mirror of God's word every day. We may not see drastic changes, but it keeps little things from creeping in, little disobediences, little transgressions. And then over time, we take those snapshots and say, I look more like Jesus now than I did when I came to Christ. I look more like Jesus now than I did two weeks ago, two years ago, two months ago. And yet we need the mirror of God's word to reveal these things to us. Again, the trajectory of our lives should move from self to Jesus over time. We're not looking for perfection, just the right direction. And a heart that agrees with the Lord on what is right and what is wrong. And so when I say we're not looking for perfection, that doesn't mean we can just live however we want. Scripture is very clear on that. There's grace, and yet, it doesn't mean we should sin all the more so grace may abound, is what we read in Scripture. Just because we're not expected to be perfect does not mean we call evil good and live in such a way that ignores the way of life that God has called us to. And it's looking into the law that helps us align our lives with Jesus' will. So finally, we've let go We've looked into the law of Christ. The natural progression is that we must live it out. We let go, and so it's our motivations, our, our center, our aim has changed. We have this standard, this kind of assessment in the Word of God, this mirror to look into. And so now we live it out. We must live it out. We've just read in chapter 1 that we're to be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. But let's look at the main theme of the book of James. I think this is the, he establishes kind of in chapter two, this, what we're going to see throughout the rest of the chapters. No matter what uh, manifestation of brokenness he addresses, it all kind of comes back to this. And it's kind of a controversial passage, we'll address that. But let's look at James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. And then we'll speak to that for a moment. James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This passage comes under much scrutiny because it appears to contradict Paul's writings in Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere 
where he says that we're saved by grace through faith and not works. But if we recognize that God's word is perfect, without error and flawless, and everything we need for life and faith, then we have to look at James in light of Paul's writings, or Paul's writing in light of James's writing, since James wrote first. James is writing about the Christian life. Paul is writing about trusting in Christ for a new life. So for James, the emphasis is the idea that we must live out our faith, that real, genuine, saving faith will show itself through works or changed lives. If our claiming of Christ and being alive in him is to be counted as authentic, then works will accompany our faith. If not, then our faith is dead. Not that our faith was real and was killed by our lack of works, but rather our faith was never alive if it's never backed up by works to show itself alive. Paul emphasizes the fact in his writing that we're saved by faith alone meaning it's only faith that saves us. He doesn't say we don't or won't do any good works. He's just clarifying that our salvation is granted to us by faith alone, on the merits of Christ's work and not ours. Because Paul would write, we're saved to good works, saved by grace through faith to do the good works that God has prepared for us. John Calvin clarifies the distinction and the relationship between faith and works like this. He said, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. So faith alone which justifies, but the faith is not alone. True faith is always accompanied by or is manifested in works. This is what James is getting at, and Paul would not disagree with this. We show our faith by our works. If we do not, then our faith is dead. It's theory only. It's idea but not practice. Real faith is Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. James says Abraham believed, and his belief was counted to him as righteousness, but we know he believed because he acted on it. His belief was proven out by his behavior. The same goes for Rahab, who James mentioned, saying her actions showed that her faith was genuine. It's not the actions or behaviors that are saving anyone. It's that their actions and behaviors are proving their faith to be more than a bluff, more than just a claim, more than just a cultural identity. This is the idea that the rest of James will build on. Whether he writes about speech or greed or favoritism or patience, it all will hinge on the genuineness of our faith. If we lack the Christ-likeness outlined in God's word, it's because we either have never had a living faith or because we lack this fullness of faith, this consistency of faith. If we lack this fullness or consistency of faith, then there are some works to evidence that our faith is real, but we may not be trusting Jesus in certain areas of our lives. This is the process of growing in Jesus. This is for all of us. We won't ever reach perfection in this lifetime, so we can't take the approach that we don't need to hear any of this, or that this series, as I mentioned earlier, is for them and not us. We each have the mirror of God's Word. This wake-up call is for all of us to look at the mirror of God's Word. We are the hypocrites. We're the ones not letting go, 
not looking into the law and not living it out. So let's check ourselves this morning and every morning. Let's get over ourselves and measure our lives against the Word of God, and let's live it out, moving Christward in our faith so that we can say at the end of our lives, whenever that may come, that we're more like Jesus than when we started. Over time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift, again, of your word. The fact that we can uh, hold it as a mirror up to our lives. That we may not like what we see. That often, sometimes, like in real life, with a physical mirror, we don't want to stand and look and contemplate and consider what we see looking back at us. And yet, that's what you've called us to in Christ That if we are to become more and more like Jesus, we need to be able to abide, dwell in your word in such a way that we we can look at the ugly parts, the uncomfortable parts, the awkward parts, the messy parts, and that we can see where we fall short, and that we can lay those things down at your feet. And not, God, to to hold up a mirror and some standard of perfection to say, I'll never get there, what's the point? But to say, you have called us to a life that's only possible outside of ourselves. You have called us to surrender, to lay down our lives, to surrender our wills to yours. So that we might look over time and see that you have worked in our lives, through the people around us, the circumstances around us, through the the things that you allow us to experience, that we might respond by faith in those situations. And we're not perfect, and yet the trajectory of our lives is Christward. That you've given us this gift, this opportunity, these graces in everything to enjoy your grace to learn to maybe not uh, have a pleasant time experiencing discipline or trial, and yet on the end of it or despite it, there's still a, a joy within us that understands that you are working something out in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And so God, over the coming weeks, as we look at the different ways, the different areas that our lack of faith kind of manifests itself, through greed, through, through trash talk, through uh, impatience, through plain favorites, whatever it might be, God, that we would see it all as we're not trusting you in a certain area of our life. And the more that we trust you, the more that we walk by faith, the more we look like Jesus. This brings glory to you. This is flourishing for us. This is Uh, this ambassadorship for your kingdom that you've called us to. And so, God, I pray that for all of us, every person in this room, that we'd be willing to take those long, hard looks in the mirror of your word and move ourselves, get ourselves out of the way so that Christ might be on display in us. God, we love you. Thank you for this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.